Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Friday, the 29th of August, 1997, and calling it an indication of the ARL's commitment to a united competition, Chief Executive Neil Whittaker announced the merger of the South Queensland Crushers and the Gold Coast Chargers. It was to be the first joint venture in Australian rugby league history. This announcement, however, was premature, and merger talks collapsed within two months, the Crushers joining the Perth Reds in being shuttered. Within the space of three years, two of the four teams admitted into the 20-team ARL competition in 1995 were no more. This has crushed the 39th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Fantastic. How are you? I'm good. We're coming down off the high of the 1997 Knights Premiership, and now we're really getting to the end of this war and the formation of the NRL, really. So this is our penultimate chapter, um, very close to the end of our series. It's funny, I contacted you in a state of panic a couple of months ago, thinking that, you know, I was deep in the research of the Newcastle Grand Final, and I was like, wait, this is the climax of the series, and then we've got to do these extra chapters that the story isn't going to end on a high, and you talked me down on the ledge, and really, I think we both came to the realisation that it was the perfect way for this series to end. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no other way for it to finish. It's uh, an absolute colossal waste of uh, time and money. Yeah, uh, at least in our last chapter, you can see some green shoots forming. You know, it was the formation of the NRL that led us to all the great football and stories we've had in the years since. So I think we will end on a note of optimism, but there's not much optimism left in this chapter. So we're going to be looking at the end of the Perth Reds, the end of the South Queensland Crushers, as well as touching on the demise of the Chargers as well. So it's good to be back in our wheelhouse of misery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and between those three teams, there weren't a whole lot of fans to begin with, but whatever fans were there then, uh, this won't be easy listening for you, I'm sure. If they're still active Crushers fans, I'll be loving it. Well, I didn't have anywhere to slot this into the research, so I'll just say it at this point. But when uh, it was announced that the crushers were closing and they were left with all unsold merchandise, they actually sent it off to Fiji and Tonga, I think it was, as a um, goodwill gesture of getting some gear over to the rugby league communities there. So I'm hoping that there's still crushers jerseys down the streets of Suva today. (laughs) Who's this Tony Hearn you speak of? (laughs) So we're going to speak about them individually, but I just want to start by looking at both of them and something that Peter Fralingos said in The Telegraph. Even if the war had not started in early 1995, chances are the Reds and Crushers would have struggled to stay afloat for a variety of reasons. Which is just astounding. Yeah, and we're going to go through all of those reasons. And just to start with... The Reds, they were almost a million in the hole by October 1994, I mean, like months uh, before a ball was kicked and, <laughs> and it's, it's already, you know, trouble. Now, going through your research in detail, my jaw was on the floor the whole time. I've got to ask you these questions throughout. I'll ask you up front. How is it possible that they were so in debt? I mean, I know football clubs aren't easy to manage. A lot of smart people have tried and failed. It just seems unbelievable that you can be that much in debt before a ball is even kicked. I mean, is there an itemized bill of what they spent this money on? And especially when they're doing their pre-season training out of horse stables, you're going under (laughs) all all these cost-cutting exercises anyway, and and you're still left with this massive financial black hole. So is it spent on marketing and entertainment and all that crap or something? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't go into the details of how this money was wasted, but... 
However it was, it meant that by the time the season was kicking off in 1995, the Reds were already in trouble. Amazing. On the other side of things, the Crushers, in one of our early chapters, we mentioned that there were merger talks between the Crushers and Chargers before kickoff in the 1995 (laughs) season. I mean... I think we've seen it with Melbourne and to a lesser extent the Titans rebirth. But I mean, you've got to get it all right on the field, off the field. They're so precarious, these fledgling clubs. You just yeah. can't have it half assed. Yeah. And I mean, to give the Crushers some defense, those merger talks were brought about because of the rumors of a Super League war. So it was with that expedience in mind. It wasn't that they were fundamentally vulnerable before they'd kicked a ball like the Perth Reds were. (laughs) You know, it was purely Super League focused that made them consider that they were vulnerable. But, you know, guess what? A Super League was coming. They were vulnerable. And if I can retreat from that defence of the Crushers, they were a terribly run administration anyway and would soon have very real financial problems just like the Reds. So they were like essentially gone by the time they started. So let's start with the Reds. And as we mentioned, they were in trouble from the start. That really escalated once the Bichette decision came down and Super League wasn't to start in 1996. That meant they were cap in hand to News Limited from March 1996 onwards. And their existence from then until their demise was essentially entirely at the largesse of News Limited. They were unable to run in their own right from that point in time onwards. The Perth Reds, to me, has always been the ultimate paradise lost. Yeah. And so much of the problem comes down to the original sin of agreeing to pay the travel costs for away teams, which... That's something, you know, the Broncos, the Cowboys, other teams were doing that too. It's not like it was a burden they bore alone, but it was one they were unable to bear. And very soon it put them into a huge financial problem. (laughs) What about other teams pay their own costs and also drop in a donation when they come just to keep us afloat? Yeah. (laughs) So they were spending $1.5 million a year on traveling, according to Stephen Edwards, their chief executive. $500,000 on themselves and a million dollars on visiting teams. So when you don't have money coming in, that's a big drain on your expenses. Absolutely. This Stephen Edwards was a lawyer, right? He was a smart guy and he's at the helm of this absolute titanic disaster. So Mm. there's got to be something in the the DNA of rugby league clubs. (laughs) I mean, is it the top heavy management? Is it, I don't know what they could spend it on. I think it was false promises when the bid was announced. And I think we'll make this clear by the time we get to the end of our red section, but I don't think Australian Rugby League was in a position to be able to support a team in Perth in 1995. And they went ahead with it. And But apart from the travel debacle, I mean, they had decent crowds compared to some of the other teams. So, mm. I mean, they had some money coming in. Perhaps they could have watered down the source a bit. I don't know, but... Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping this can be the springboard for that full-scale investigation that we need. Because I noticed in your notes you pulled out one quote that uh, if they got 15,000 fans at $20 a seat, the club was still looking at a loss of around $10 million a year. Like that, There's something off with those economics. <laughs> Is it a money laundering front? I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's something going on. Yeah. Uh, And beyond the money troubles, the staffing wasn't there. I think they did a decent job with their squad in 1995, but some of those good players left and it was just never all there. And I love uh, Peter Mulholland's explanation of it. He said, our club, like most, is structured like a pyramid. At the top, you have your elite internationals. In the middle, you have your belly of players trying to make a living and get what they can out of the game. While at the bottom, you have players with some fire and spirit. Youngsters trying to secure a spot in first grade. Unfortunately, we don't have enough players in the top and bottom sections and too many in that middle section getting too comfortable. He's one of the greats of the game, Peter Mahon, one of the best blokes, one of the great minds, and that's the most articulate description of a transit lounge I've ever heard. Yeah, for sure. And in addition to not having the players there at the start, they continue to have turmoil throughout their three-year tenure. Uh, 1997, the Nadir in many ways with the continuing judiciary woes of Mark Geyer uh, and the continuing personal woes of Julian O'Neill. 
<laughs> you're going to say the continuing story of Bungalow Bill then, but um, <laughs> if you sign Mike Guyer and Julian O'Neill in 1997 and you get Guyer and O'Neill, that's <laughs> on you. Very true. So by 1997, the money woes that had plagued them from the start and had escalated after the Bichette decision had left them in danger of collapse at any point. So Stephen Edwards said, it would be a brave man unless there was a change to the venue and a change to the finances under which we operate for us to lawfully trade beyond this year. If there's anybody out there that can get us on you know, the balance sheet of the Reds at this era, yeah, I'd be so interested. Yeah. So Super League over 96 and 1997 had spent $25 million on the Reds. So as 1997 went on, it was an open secret that the Reds were very vulnerable. That led to rumours starting. The big one was a relocation to Melbourne, which was never far from the headlines. The speculation was always there. Those rumours went away when Super League announced a Melbourne team midway through the year, which meant that how it played out was that, you know, some of the Reds players went over to Melbourne, but the the Reds were not going to be a relocated entity. There's no point. I mean, they're either in Perth or they don't exist. Yeah. And just a Steve Mascord article about the Melbourne team, he said, Melbourne is more important because it's a head office town where sponsorship decisions are made. Perth has some good juniors and a hardcore group of fans, that's all. And just that moving to a head office town thing, like maybe it always made sense to look to Melbourne first. So more to the point, think strategically about expansion rather than just putting it out to bids and making your choices based on who had the best slideshow. <laughs> That's what they did, didn't they? Yeah. Like, the whole reason the Cowboys were in is because they didn't want to disappoint Kerry Bostead because he worked so hard. <laughs> it's a pretty flash slideshow. <laughs> Look, I don't fault them. They were old 48-man committee men making decisions at the end of their tenure for this four-team expansion in 95. It all looked good. I was all for it. It sounded so cool. And I'm always positive on expansion. But in hindsight, one at a time would have been the best option. Yeah, and I think we've been guilty of this so many times over the course of our series. We're the kings of hindsight. And I was like you. I thought it was really cool in 1995. And we have to remember it was a different world. But... There's some things that just seem so easy looking back. And I think the Perth thing versus Melbourne, you know, Super League going to Adelaide, there's just so many moments where looking back, you're like, why didn't we try Melbourne first? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, at least there was logic behind it. Do it all yeah. at once like a band-aid. There was some yeah. thinking behind it, which is new for rugby league administration decisions. Yeah. So you can't fault them that much. And then it took those failures to go to the one one-at-a-time approach in the future. So Yeah, and I think the model in 1995, even if we don't want to cast too much blame, what it did was basically make it inevitable that we were going to get a situation that we got in terms of the competition not being able to sustain the extra teams, they're not being the playing talent to sustain it. So I think it's all there. The original sin of 1995 was coming back to bite them at this point in time. One of the other options for Perth that it was talked about was them switching to becoming a rugby union team. So Stephen Edwards shot that down. But what the ARU did almost immediately was to get in to Western Australia. They hosted a Tri-Nations test between Australia and South Africa at Perth in 1998, and that paved the way for the eventual uh, Super 12 Perth team. Which went pretty well, right? It, and they're back now. So it started well, then I don't know exactly what happened, but then they went bust, but now they're back. And well, I can tell you what happened. There was a situation where there was only 30 minutes of actual game time during yeah. the actual games, and they were kicking penalty goals incessantly. And everyone well, went, fuck this. <laughs> well, the thing about it, mate, is we can bag out Union all we want, and we will continue to do so, but that's such like an East Coast bias when you think about what we lost and what we gave up to Union in the folding of the Reds... Oh, it's um the US leaving Afghanistan with all their weapons. It's the dumbest. <laughs> yeah, and Dean Lance, coach of the Reds, when he was calling for the team to say, said, to have a national competition, you've got to have the capital cities in it. Our under-17s made the grand final, and all but three of them are from Western Australia. 
that's like a pretty amazing result. It's paradise lost. I mean, if it just was ran right, it would have been still there today and thriving. Yeah. If the numbers said we're going to lose a million dollars before it balls, Keith, put it back a few years. Yeah, exactly. And with the crushers, I'm a bit ambivalent about what the crushers without the war would have been. But with the Reds, I just can't see a model where they survived, like regardless of the Super League war. It just seemed that they were always going to come up against these money troubles. And we just weren't there in terms of sophistication of the administration and the running of the game at that point in time. So I think with or without the war, the Reds are in trouble. But at least the Reds were wanted, like people wanted that. No one wanted the crushes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we'll get to the crushes. As much as I love the Aztec gold, part of me does think that what if we had a different strip in 1995? Does it give them a different you know, identity from the start? It was just a businessman's attitude. I mean, it's a big city. We need more than one Brisbane team. It's a league heartland, and that makes sense, right? But from a Broncos fan, you're like, fucking Broncos town. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. <laughs> it's the equivalent of the Mariners popping up. <laughs> so anyway, back to the Reds. They were officially killed off on the 1st of October. So Super League announced that they wouldn't be returning in 1998, regardless of any peace deal with the ARL. Such a shame, man. And a real shame for the players and staff who were left stranded. The Super League were quite ruthless about it. Some players had travelled back to Perth from the Eastern States for the end-of-year ball, and without notice, Super League cancelled the ball as as soon as the announcement was made. (laughs) Cinderella's left there with (laughs) barefoot, no slippers. Here's an interesting thought, though. Do you think the nightclubs and casinos were like, yes... Yeah. (laughs) How good is this? The guy I really feel for in all of this was Steve Rogers, who was over there as football manager. And most of the players and administrators, coaches, they had contracts in place. So they'd be looked after, you know, they'd get a payout of what they were owed. Steve Rogers didn't have a contract. He bought a house in Perth that, you know, he had now no way of paying for and, and no indication of what his future would be. Why didn't he have a contract? I don't know. He's the only bloke in the whole club with no contract. Yeah, but uh, this was just really heartbreaking from his wife, Carol. The decision was like a knife in the back to Steve. He'd put in so much effort, had so much enthusiasm for the club. He was shattered. That sucks. As long as we've been talking about rugby league history, every time Steve Rogers has popped up, whatever story we're telling, it's always been in a post-playing career capacity where he's struggling to find his place. He is trying to get an opportunity at the Gold Coast or another club, and he's he's trying to you know make his way in rugby league post-playing, and he just never quite got settled. And in light of everything that happened in the aftermath, when I see this, it's just brutal. Yeah, it is. So with the announcement made, it was time for News Limited to launch into their propaganda campaign about what happened and why. And... <laughs> Quite quickly, they tried to put the blame onto the ARL. So, Oh, yeah, definitely the ARL's fault. Yeah. So Ian Frickberg said, From day one of our talks, the ARL said categorically that there was no place for Perth. Their position was that they didn't want Perth in a United competition. I've seen an ARL document that has a competition structure and Perth is not on it. I mean, the ARL's supposed to take on the ultimate basket case that couldn't make money even before a ball was kicked and hemorrhage cash for uh, years. I mean, like, where's the logic in that? Uh, and I also like <laughs> this note that you sent to me. Why would the ARL want Perth? Their rectums are still bleeding. <laughs> That's the other element. Like, I can understand the ARL being unwilling to, you know, take Perth back after everything that had happened, you know, from yeah. the outset, defecting within a month of their first game. It's pretty thick hide to be blaming the ARL in that situation. And Neil Whitaker came out and rebutted that, saying, Super League did not discuss shutting down Perth with us, and they did not ask us what we thought of starting up a franchise in Melbourne in the current climate either. We haven't spoken to them for six weeks, and we haven't talked about competition structure since at least four weeks before that. For them to try and shoot blame over to us for what happened in Perth is completely inappropriate. That's spot on. (laughs) And... Rupert Murdoch was asked about the axing of Perth and, as always, he was elbows deep in the drama and everything that was going on. You could tell he was really invested in this. 
He said, I haven't done anything. Ask my son. Blame him for everything. <laughs> Rock solid, Dad. But just the utter disdain for this. Ugh. He clearly could not give less of a shit about this entire thing. Meanwhile, there's players and clubs left without a job. There's fans across the country, you know, disillusioned, and it just doesn't matter to him. Well, I think we've laughed at the past in the early episodes about the average drongo watching the 60 minutes where he's wearing the skivvy and then screaming at the TV, blaming Murdoch. He's controlling everything. We're laughing, saying he doesn't care about it. But that's even worse, really. <laughs> oh, of course. But the reality of the situation was that I think even if there'd been two comps in 1998, Super League would have closed the Perth Reds. So there's no need to blame the ARL. They can look at themselves. They got the Telegraph to push out some more propaganda. Peter Falingo saying, The Bleeding Hearts Brigade lamenting the loss of the Perth Reds have come up with all sorts of reasons why the club should have been saved. Trouble is not one of them mentioned where the money would come from. And again, as I said, Perth at this stage were in existence entirely because of News Limited. But this was the decision that the vision resulted in. So again, Steve Mascord, October 1 should also go down as the day when it became apparent that any vision Super League ever had, national or global, was declared clinically dead. (laughs) Harsh, but true. It's true. And isn't it interesting that as soon as the going gets tough, it's the expansion teams that get cut. Perth, Crushers, Mariners, Rams, Chargers, they're the first to go. All we've heard for three years is that there's too many Sydney teams. And as soon as it it's time for reunification. It's let's get rid of these exotic franchises. Yeah, but the inconvenient truth is at least the Sydney team's got some fans, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is the thing. Like, I think it was ahead of its time. Uh, so this was Colin Sanders. We regret having to take this action. As Super League, the Perth Reds, and most importantly, the fans of Perth committed so much to the club. Unfortunately, bold and innovative plans are often ahead of their time. This has been the case with the Reds. And what I really don't like about that is the way that it's framed as if it was Super League's bold and innovative plan. And this was reiterated by Ken Cowley a month earlier in September 1997 when he said, part of the problem is they have different aims. Super League aspires to be a national game, whereas the ARL doesn't. Just rewriting history. Regardless of all the financial problems and everything else we've talked about, let the record show that the ARL started Perth and Super League killed Perth off. So it was a sad day for Western Australian Rugby League, which had been running since 1948 and, you know, a small but grassroots movement had built since then. Uh, One of their grassroots figures, Peter Ilfeld, was quoted as saying, there's a great sense of loss here today. So many people have worked hard and the coming of this chance in the national premiership was what it was always about. We're isolated again. It could be that rugby league will no longer be played here at all. We could go back to where we were in 1948. Stephen Edwards was adamant that that wouldn't be the case, saying that they'd be back and saying, I've no doubt we'll be part of a national competition. We've just got to be ready. It'll be closer to five years than 10. And 25 years on, we're still waiting for that. If only they had the Phoenix-like behavior of the Gold Coast franchises. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So just to close on Perth, this was Ian Head's summation of it. The twin factors of the tyranny of distance and the extraordinary costs involved in handling that would always work against them. But this was hardly fresh news. The AFL long ago identified that with their Eagles and Dockers and have handled it. And obviously the situation with the AFL in Perth is different from rugby league. But it wasn't news or it shouldn't have been news that Perth was going to take time and money and required long-term investment. So I think there's a lot of blame to go around with the demise of the Reds. I just don't know how you sit down with a calculator beforehand and and get it that wrong. Yeah, yeah. Is it pretend? Is it pie in the sky and and we're all rah-rah, we're all going to make this work and just pretending the figures add up? I think that's what it is. I think it starts with the ARL having stars in their eyes in 93 or 94 whenever they were planning to admit the Reds. It'll be all right on the night, and it very much wasn't. But if you're Super League and talking about this vision and Laurie Daly on posters in Beijing and you can't even sustain the Perth Reds for an extra year, you don't get off scot-free either. <laughs> if you had a Laurie Daly poster in Beijing now, I reckon they'd bring you in for questioning. <laughs> 
So let's move on to the crushes. And we can't forget that it started well in terms of fan support. They averaged 21,000 their first season. That's astounding to me. It must have just been Broncos fans wanting more footy, right? Yeah. The even more impressive thing about that first season is I was like, oh, okay, I'll go and, and I'll take out their home Broncos game thinking that they had like 40,000 at Suncorp or something like that that was going to skew their average crowds. They didn't have a home game against Brisbane at Suncorp in 1995. Amazing. Which um, just seems like an insane scheduling oversight by the ARL to not give them two home and away clashes in 1995. They just had the one at ANZ. But as we got into 1996, the Crushers were really hoping to capitalise on fan disillusionment in Brisbane, thinking that with everyone angry at the Broncos, it was the Crushers' time to strike. Unfortunately, that wasn't borne out in reality. Their crowds fell to 13,000 in 1996 and then halved again to 7,000 in 1997. See, that's the problem. You can get by with 13,000 in rugby league. It's like most of Sydney clubs, right? But yeah, 7,000, then you're going to start seeing a few wolf-like creatures at the door. <laughs> yeah. And very troubling results in 1996, uh, the first of their two successive wooden spoons to round out their existence in the top grade. They were beaten 52-4 to mid-1996 to the Chargers, which was the first time any of the Gold Coast uh, teams had got more than 40 points. This spelled the end for Bob Lindner as their coach. He was out the door, replaced by Steve Bleakley. Um, I don't know who Steve Bleakley is. I looked it up. He's an English player. Yeah, okay, interesting. I honestly hadn't heard the name. Yeah. It shows how much I was following the crushes in that period. Yeah. But yeah, I feel sorry for Lidner. I was a big Lidner fan. Yeah, uh, but it was just a horrible position to be in. Constant turnover of the team, and the only good players they had were basically good players in name only, or they had formerly been good players. Of the players who left, they weren't able to replace them with anyone of note. Bleakley said, Obviously, with very little to spend on players, we had to look for those who just wanted a chance to play regularly in first grade. While we're sitting here seeking the slipper on the administrations, deservedly so, we've got to consider why they're transit lounges. No one wants to go live in Perth. Um, no one wants to go play for a basket case in Brisbane. So you're paying overs for has-beens or um, not-there-yets, which is just how it's got to be done. Yeah. And then at the same time, they debut in the middle of a civil war. So yeah. <laughs> it was stacked against them. It was bad luck. It was bad luck. And yeah, I mean, a club like that, you've got to pay overs and accept the scraps that you're given. But the tragedy about it is that the hope was there. There was like a young team with plenty of potential. They won the 1996 President's Cup. That's incredible. And if you look at some of the players who debuted there, like Clinton Shafosky, Chris McKenna, Phil Lee, Travis Norton, Guns. Troy Pezet had a great year in 1997. And there was talk of him as a halfback of the future. So, all right, maybe that is not a premiership winning side in itself, but it's the start of something. In a different era, if they had the time they needed, that's a core of a team that could actually start to do something. What put um, Scott Hill and Brett Kamali and um, whoever else Melbourne got into that squad and then suddenly it's a formidable team? Yeah, and a lot of the talk about the crushes at a time when they were struggling on field was that they were developing the right way with a youth development scheme. In one article in the Rugby League Week in March 1996, David Page said that the ARL were going to use the Crushers model as a model for other establishment clubs in terms of junior base and, and building up from within. How is that a novel approach? Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be, but... <laughs> Um, but the point is that they were building themselves up the right way at a time when short-term success was way more important. It was just terrible timing. And into 1997, there were just no prospects for success on the field. Steve Bleakley used the motivating tactic of reminding them that if the game got back together next year, that many of them will be without a club. He said in one uh, you know, stirring dressing room speech, Everyone's talking compromise and a competition next year of 12 or 14 teams. If that's the case, there will be about 150 first graders from this year out of a job. During the week, I reminded my blokes of that situation. 
Is he going to the walk school of motivation? Well, so that had some success straight away because that weekend they beat the Roosters. Really? But the powers of that strategy were short-lived. So a couple of weeks later, they were thrashed 52-10 to 10 by Parramatta, uh, after which Ray Hadley said that only two or three of the crushers were genuine first graders. That's demoralizing, isn't it? And they went on to get their second wooden spoon, leading to a career record of 14 wins, 51 losses, and a draw. How much of this can be attributed to the Garrick Morgan signing in 95? Well, we're going to get there. Uh, (laughs) But Steve Bleakley, when asked about those losses, and it was the Parramatta loss in particular that he was talking about, said, it was a very disappointing performance today, but I don't think that should reflect on the future of the club. And... I think that's true in that we've often said that on-field performance seems to be way overrated in terms of who should be in the competition. Absolutely. But there's also the fact that when you're outmatched on the field, you're going to get flogged occasionally. It's when they give up and it's 75-0 or whatever. Yeah. And they're not trying to tackle. That's when the fans get angry. But if you're just completely outmatched and outclassed, I don't see how that's that bad. Unfortunately for the Crushers, their off-field performance was like 100 nil if on field they were 75 nil. <laughs> so let's get to their money woes. And they really took off mid-1996 when in the middle of all their court battles, the ARL announced that they were delaying their administration grants. For the crushers, this meant that they couldn't give the players their half-yearly payment. The ARL must have known that. Well, this is what Arco said. Luckily, they have an agreement from the players that they can defer the payment for some weeks. so yeah very lucky the players unsurprisingly didn't see it that way (laughs) did they class it as unlucky (laughs) so tony hearn's situation was typical that he just bought a house in brisbane and then was told that his first payment from that contract which he would be using to pay off that house would not be coming and so suddenly like you know he's got a mortgage and he's not getting paid i will say this rugby league players seem to not understand that you can rent properties in the short term yeah (laughs) if you go to a fledgling club on a short-term deal you don't have to buy a house immediately (laughs) well what you can't rent is a brand new nissan 200 sx that uh, (laughs) chris mckenna had purchased but hadn't been able to afford to run for months because of the lack of this payment. And this was a sign of the times. He decided to sell the car because, you know, he needed money. Uh, who rocks up to purchase it? Michael Voss of the Brisbane Lions. <laughs> How funny is that? But think about the amount of chicks that love cars that, that cost him. Yeah. <laughs> like he should be putting in a claim on that. <laughs> So the players were feeling abandoned by the club, abandoned by the ARL. The Crushers were doing all they could to get the ARL to give them some money to get through it. The ARL were reluctant to grant a loan to the Crushers because the Crushers already owed them a million dollars from a prior loan. Uh, On top of that, they had also got the $1.5 million bonus from Optus and they were saying, well, what's happened to that money? So they sent the administrators in who eventually identified debts of up to $9 million. So there was a lot going wrong internally at the Crushers. We need an itemized list and where the money went. Yep, yep. That's $9 million in 97, not $9 million today. Mm. That's $30 million today. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and I think part of it does come down to the paying overs. So Nigel Gaffey was on $275,000 a year which was reported in the press at the time as being a bit outrageous for where he was in his career. I'm an Nigel Gaffey booster, mind you. So the ARL sent the administrators in and eventually got things running so that they could, um, you know, get a loan and try to get the club going again. There was a Save Our Crushers campaign that was mooted with, um, you know, Gene Miles, Artie Beats and Wally Lewis, some of former greats, getting behind it. Um, I like this. This isn't a direct quote from Dick Tosser Turner, who was their chairman, but uh, it was reported in the press about this Save Our Crushers campaign that Turner was thankful for the moral support, but the only thing that can save the club is cash. So I kind of think that was Dick Turner saying to the reporter, like, just tell them to bring cash or don't bother. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it's the only thing that's going to save us. 
<laughs> Realist old dick. Yeah. But it's just funny that you're a journalist that'll look into every aspect of a club, including how many hot dogs are eaten at the ground, and no one's ever explained why they're always broke. And it's just taken for granted that yeah. that's just the way it is. They appointed a new CEO in 1997, Eric Lusco, and I think this quote sums up that mentality and the problem that rugby leagues club have. So Eric Lasco of the loan that they were eventually able to secure to keep them solvent said, those debts have been kept on our books simply because that if someday we're in a position to repay them, we will, but they're not interest <laughs> accruing. And they're not interest accruing and no one is seeking that money to be repaid. <laughs> it's actually uh Totally ironic that I'm making these comments, given that I run my personal finances <laughs> just like that. <laughs> and of course, the first people to get stiffed were the players. So after the 1996 drama, they were forced to accept something like 66 cents on the dollar for their contracts. Wouldn't that give you the shits? Oh, and again, this is when blokes like Chris McKenna, Grant Young, like the players who they built the club around, they left and you never got a chance to see the club build around their talented core because they went for better offers. Uh, Lasco wasn't done with his uh, brilliant money-making ideas, so he thought that he would save some money by withholding match payments and said, players are being paid monthly on their service agreements, but match day fees will be delayed until the end of the season. It will depend on performance. (laughs) And thankfully that wasn't able to get over the line. Wayne Beavis Uh, responded to that suggestion by saying, I can understand they want commitment and all the rest, but you can't withhold match payments on the basis of how they perform. Just moving the goalposts too is just bad form. So with all this trouble, it was viewed that maybe a white knight would help. Uh, And so here comes Kerry Packer making a decision to get involved with the Queensland Crushers and trying to support the cause of making them a viable competitor to the Broncos. In terms of white knights, you don't get much more quality white than Paco, potentially. Yeah. So that was in October 1996. He announced he was getting on board to, you know, bring them to glory. By February 1997, he was looking at selling off their leagues club and training grounds for housing development. (laughs) Quite an agile guy for a big fellow, that backflip. (laughs) So this was an unnamed official. After the Super League deal, Kerry Packer withdrew his original undertaking to tackle the Broncos head-on with a huge promotional budget. A new agreement was drawn up for a lot less money. We were told either sign or PBL were out the door. The worst part was to come. They took a mortgage over the entire property as security for the $4 million that had been advanced to cover the club's massive debts. We were told it was PBL's intention to sell the entire property as soon as they could get their price. (laughs) But that's an example of a businessman versus a rugby league man. Yeah. (laughs) Rather than just sink money into a black hole, he's like, well, we should protect ourselves here. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I hope the Aussies for the ARL had access to that newspaper article before cheering Kerry Packer at that meeting in Newcastle that we mentioned. But with a failed white knight, the crushers had to think of some other ways of saving money. So the cost-cutting started with their away trip. So they were flying to and Sydney on the same day to save on accommodation and then uh, getting sandwiches and fruit that had been prepared by one of the manager's wives as their snacks for the journey. And then the story came out that the players had to pay $5 each for that meal. That can't be right. Des Knight, who was their chairman, came out and said that that was actually a half-truth. He said... In the past, when they've had to bus it to a game outside Sydney to save time on comfort stops, the wife of manager Peter Murphy made up a package of sandwiches and fruit. Apparently, coach Steve Bleakley suggested the players throw in a buck or two to show their appreciation as the Murphys were paying for this themselves. That was how it all started. That's good form. Yeah, it is. It's nice, but it's kind of embarrassing that these kind of stories come out. And then they had a trip coming to West's. And so um, the Magpies administration had to make a statement that the players would get a meal when they arrived at <laughs> Campbelltown. It's like they're um, getting billeted out in high school. <laughs> it is embarrassing, but I think it's a molehill on a mountain, that one. 
It's definitely a molehill, but I just rewatched Moneyball the other day and there's a scene where David Justice goes to a vending machine to try to get a Coke out yeah. and then he gets told that they have to pay for it, which made me think of Braith and Asta talking about having to pay for their Powerade at the Tigers. The little things. Yeah, it, it's a nothing thing in the grand scheme of things, but it's just not the way top clubs are run. And if your mentality is to always seek these little cost-cutting measures, it's watering down the source. <laughs> it's one of the great rugby league dojos saying it's not a good look, mate. Uh, it was a good look for their competitors, the Brisbane Broncos, who showing Phil Gould levels of not wanting to single anyone out. <laughs> um, this... this <laughs> I love this article. This was in the Sydney Morning Herald. The Broncos are keen to downplay the difference in the comfort zones of the two sides. We don't want to highlight the yawning gap, media manager Bill Walker said. (laughs) So by mid-1997, there seemed no way out. They were spiralling on-field, spiralling off-field. No one was interested. So towards the end of the season, they came up with the idea to throw open the gates. They got... 2,304 to a a game that cost them $10,000 to put the game on. So for their match against St. George, they thought, well, we'll make it free entry. At that point, you're basically putting up the white flag, right? Even if you made it two bucks entry, um, it's something, just a token gesture or something, but the gates are open. We are not a professional outfit. Yeah, exactly. And and so they, they got 13,800 to show up, which was their biggest attendance of the season by far. They decided to repeat the gesture for their last home game and got another 11,000 to that. So they were the only two games of the season to break 10,000. Uh, and it actually makes that 7,000 crowd average look even worse. So if you take those two games out, it's 5,700. Plus, each day cost the club $20,000. So it's not like it was making them any money by doing it. But that game against West turned out to be the last game of their history. The players were well aware of that. So Craig Teven said, When a team has a year like ours, it's hard to focus on too much positive when you're five and six weeks out from the end of the season. Everything seems so negative and so far away. But all of a sudden, the last game is here. We'll all have to live with the fact that we've finished last and that the season's been a 4-1 for us. But to win that last game means everything finishes on a high. I think that's a mini fairy tale, actually. Yeah, and they did that. They won all three grades in their last game. And as we spoke about previously, that win in first grade propelled the Chargers to the semifinals. Which is so cool, yeah. And at the time, the speculation was there about the merger. So it was a nice on-field ending. And I really like this from Craig Teven. We may have had some troubled times, but the club threw me a lifeline and resurrected my career. I'll never forget the crushes. That's lovely. I mean, it just goes to show the rugby league spirit. Anybody can be anybody on any given day with heart. You just can't do it for a grinding season without the cattle. So let's get to that merger. So we talked about merger talks taking place before the start of season 1995. By 1996, it was more and more apparent that that could be a way that it plays out. And despite Neil Whittaker downplaying the idea in February 1997, it was just a commonly assumed thing that that was on the cards. So like the Crushers, the Gold Coast were a fringe entity in terms of rugby league. And I'm not going to retell the Gold Coast story. I actually went back and listened to our Gold Coast chapter in preparation for this, which um, says a couple of things. One of the quality of our work that I'm now using our own stuff as a source, but also (laughs) how long this saga has dragged on for for us. I've forgotten everything that we've talked about, but that is like my favorite story in this whole series. So if you haven't listened to that, I think it really frames this episode well and, and it informs a lot of what we're about to talk about with the Chargers and Crushers merger. So the Gold Coast, they'd had a good year on field, but they were looking for some kind of idea of whether they would be in the competition going forward. Neil Whittaker was unable to give them any guarantees, which meant the Chargers were in a bind. And part of that bind came down to the goodness of their administration. People like Paul Broughton, who was there as their CEO, said that he couldn't sign players without knowing if they were going to be a team in 1998 and beyond. 
He said, at the moment, I could not sign a player and look him in the eye and tell him that this club will definitely be here next season. To do such a thing would be totally corrupt, which is true. But like how many other administrators would have taken that high road? So I really liked that. But you can feel the frustration from the players and the coach just going about their business, not knowing if there was any point to it, whether they would have a club to play for in 1998. So the merger talks continued. And the idea of this being a second Brisbane team, so it was likely to be called the South Queensland Chargers. The Broncos gave very muted and qualified to support to the idea of sharing the region. But Shane Edwards was adamant that the region couldn't support a second team. He said, to date, there is no proof that two teams are sustainable. The Seagulls poured $18 million into the Gold Coast and there was no profit. The Crushers record is no better. And I think that's true in terms of how the Gold Coast and Crushers played out. But I think you're doing a disservice to your city and your region to say that there's no way it can support a second rugby league team. I mean, it's a big city, right? Rugby league heartland. If it's done right, it could easily support several teams. Yeah. And so the idea was that the Chargers or Crargers, which I think is more uh, <laughs> more pleasant than Trushers. The, the... <laughs> They're both unpleasant. <laughs> So the thrushes. <laughs> so the Krajers were likely to be based at Carrara and retain their identity as a Gold Coast team. There was a groundswell for support from Gold Coast politicians. Uh, the Queensland Premier Rob Borbidge met Kerry Packer and said that he wanted the Chargers included in any rationalised competition. So the ball officially got rolling in July 1997 with the first formal joint venture talks of the entire Super League war. And pretty quickly, it became apparent that this merger would basically be a Chargers takeover. So Phil Economides was quoted as saying that the Chargers would have the whip hand in any merger with the Crushers, which I think that was about the first time they'd ever had the whip hand in their history. Just the racing politics and underworld connotations in rugby league, It's just, yeah. they're always there. And just uh, nicely coming full circle from Wally Lewis and the draft horse days. <laughs> a couple of the figures who were there on the Chargers side, which were Paul Broughton and Tom Bellew, they'd been installed by the ARL to bring a bit of stability to the club after the Jeff Muller debacle. And I've got to say, like, I think it is such a testament to those men that they were able to turn around the ship so quickly that they did have the whip hand in this merger. And yes, I mean, I know it's the crushers on the other side, but they'd achieved a level of stability that the club had never had in its 10-year history. And I think they did a remarkable job once they were installed. Those guys are business rugby league men. Yeah. So there was some resistance to the merger. Uh, One ARL club official said, why hand all of Brisbane to the Broncos? which was a sentiment that was common around the game. Uh, And there was a a long impasse where nothing could really get done. And on the Super League side of things, Roy Masters rightly points out that the Crushers and Chargers were both effectively owned by the ARL. And if they couldn't get it together, well, how serious are the ARL really about compromise? Absolutely. But in the ARL's defence, Super League effectively owned all 10 of their teams and they weren't rushing to mergers either. But the talks went on, and then on the 29th of August, Neil Whittaker announced that the South Queensland Chargers would be a single club playing in the ARL or the United competition in 1998. But that announcement ended up being a bit premature. So when the announcement was made, um, Steve Mascord reported that a steering committee of similar composition to decide such issues as the club's home ground, colours, coach and playing staff. So alarm bells there that they'd announced the merger before any of the fine details were worked out. And one of those details was about player contracts. So the Chargers were unwilling to take on the Crushers' player contracts and didn't really want many of the players. There were stories that only three or four Crushers players were actually wanted. Sad. A different story for the Gold Coast. I like this from Jamie Goddard. You'd be surprised how many players have received really good offers to go elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) But he makes a good point. For years now, the coast has treated us, a lot of us, with contempt. 
believing that we had nowhere else to go because no other clubs wanted us. Well, that's not the case anymore. So good on Goddard and the rest of the 97 Chargers for drumming up that interest. It's amazing what a bit of on-field success can do for Yeah, Yeah, for sure. That interest wasn't there for the Crushers, so it was said that only three players, Clinton O'Brien, Clint Schafowski and winger Jason Hudson were actually in demand by other clubs. And reading that, I think it's something to keep in mind when you're feeling sympathy for the players, which I absolutely feel so much sympathy for these players, is that for a lot of these guys, there was like a very narrow window of time for them to have first grade careers. So 1994, there's 16 teams. 2000, there's 14 teams. There's this five-year period where players who wouldn't have been near a top squad before can, for the rest of their lives, they can proudly talk about themselves as first-grade players, in some cases even Queensland origin reps. And there's always that argument, oh, there's not enough first-graders go along. If you develop them long enough, there will be. Yeah, but you have to suffer these few years where there clearly isn't enough players. So the Crushers used 35 players in 1997. 12 of them would continue to play NRL into 1998. Seven managed to get a gig in England and 16 never played any first-class football again. Um, So of those 12, I'd say Clinton Schafowski, Mark Tukey, Clinton O'Brien, Aaron Maul, Danny Nutley and Mac Bickerstaff were the ones that had, you know, a memorable post-Crushers career. But most of the other players, it was like one season at the Gold Coast or, or somewhere else and they were never heard of again. So that was a problem from the, the Chargers side of things. They didn't want many of the Crushers players and they didn't want to take on the burden of their contracts. That was one problem. Uh, the further problem was the debts. So for a start, it had to be a joint venture, not a merger, because the Chargers didn't want to take on the debts of up to $5 million. There's a, um actual wise move there. But it meant that there was tension within the charges as to whether this was a good idea. So they were essentially taking on just the husk of the crushers. They were getting the South Queensland name, uh, but all they were getting otherwise was debt and unwanted player contracts. So this led to some tension between Broughton and Bellew. So Broughton was the opinion that they needed to make the merger and they would just take on the debt because the ARL or QRL had to pay out those contracts anyway, so we might as well just do it and make a fresh start. Tom Bellew was of the other side of things and he became against the merger and Broughton in his book said, it was increasingly obvious that my time as chief executive was nearing an end. As the chairman Tom Bellew, lovely man that he was, needed a more compliant CEO. So Broughton was out. He did say, we would have a huge disagreement on policy, but my respect for him never diminished, which I liked as just two old school rugby league men. Uh, But it should be known that that opinion of Bellew wasn't universal. So you might remember his sabotaging of the New South Wales Rugby League's um, ARL board election where Bellew jumped ship and voted for the QRL candidate. Uh, And that wasn't forgotten by some. So Eric Cox, uh, former ARL ground announcer, who any time he pops up in this story. (laughs) The greatest. um, (laughs) The greatest. So uh, the ARL were having their end-of-season Christmas party in 1997, and uh, Eric Cox was there and was heard to say to everyone, if Bellew comes, I'm going. Uh, A few minutes later, Bellew walked in and Cox stood up without saying a word and just walked out. (laughs) It's Piggins-esque, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But Bellew got his way, and on the 31st of October, it was announced that the merger talks had broken down. The Chargers weren't willing to take on the debt or the player contracts, and the crushers would be immediately shut down. So depressing, man. It is. I think this is the crux of any merger, joint venture, whatever you want to call it. Somehow, between the two parties you've got to get to a dollar. Whether it's 50 cents each, 80 cents from one and 20 cents from the other, I mean, the latter is probably the easiest way to make it work, but you've got to get to a dollar. This merger was getting to about 40 cents and 38 of those cents were the charges. (laughs) But I mean, um, 
in negotiations, they always say, you know, it's a good negotiation if both sides leave happy. In rugby league mergers, both sides are unhappy perpetually. Like. Yeah, yeah. So that was the end of the Crushers. Well, not the final end because they announced that they would keep the league's club going to try to recoup some of their debt. With no point shutting down pokies, man. It's such a great community investment. And again, it's the players who suffer. So after the 60 cents on the dollar debacle the year before, they were all just cut adrift and just like absolutely fucked over by the crushes, the ARL, like everyone involved. It's just really sad. It's the classic end of the bubble, isn't it? Someone's got to be left holding the can. Yeah. So Craig Teven said, we're not like those guys that were cut at Parramatta or West who got some proportion of their contract. We all had two-year contracts and now we've been left in the lurch. We've basically been told to do our best and find another club. They must be still seething. Yeah. So again, I'll let Ian Heads sum up the end of The Crushers, saying, the story of the downfall of the club is surely about as grim as it can get for rugby league. (laughs) This has been one of the most depressing chapters. (laughs) There's not a lot of light in it, and we've got a bit more darkness before we get to the end. So (laughs) we mentioned in our Mariners episode the potential Mariners-Chargers merger, and that actually got pretty close. Once again, Paul Broughton was in favour of it. It would have given them an automatic five-year licence. It would have saved them in the short term. It would have injected some like really quality players there. Um, and that's probably the one that could have worked really well. So that was the one where the Mariners would just fold up and go to Gold Coast? Yeah. Right. So it's just a player injection and a license injection? Uh, yeah. Well, this is where this fell over, is that it was to include many of the members of the Mariners' administration, including their chief executive. That was to be included in the package. And the Chargers board turned down that offer. So it it just seems it's like feathering their own nests. Um, Going back to Jack Gibson's quote, you can't get the blazers off those guys. (laughs) Well, it's very hard to, if you're there siphoning a couple of hundred grand a year out of the coffers to say, well, you know what, I'm going to fall on my sword and be unemployed. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say, oh, they should have just stepped aside. But if you're in that position, how do you know you'd react? Uh, also, it makes sense that the local guy would stay, right? But... Yeah. Um, but what it meant is that now the Chargers were right in the mix of fighting for survival. And from the outset, they were viewed as extremely vulnerable. They had a bad year on field in 1998. Not really a surprise given all their instability. So it was a terrible year to have bad form on field. And as the criteria came out and the Chargers were always near the bottom of it and weren't getting many people to games. It seems their cards were marked. The ARL shamefully sacked Tom Bellew and stacked the board with people who would be favourable to closing down the club as they came towards rationalisation. So that made it easy for them to fold the charges as they did at the end of 1998. Now, for an organisation that was big on loyalty agreements, are you detecting a bit of disloyalty? See again? Quite a bit of disloyalty. And this, to me, is the tragedy of the Gold Coast. So for the first time in their history, they had money in the bank, they had a competent administration, they had a good coach, they had a team of able players passionate for the cause, and it wasn't enough. Like, I think ultimately their past just caught up with them at last. But it's just really sad that at this point, they've finally got it together. This is the point that it was taken away from them. But on the plus side, the Gold Coast came back. You know, it hasn't been a smooth ride for the Titans, but they're still here. And with Redcliffe joining them, Brisbane finally seems big enough for two teams. And they both seem to learn a lesson from the mistakes of the Crushers. I've got to give the rugby league community props on just never giving up on El Dorado. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, But that leaves Perth. We mentioned the quote about good ideas being ahead of their time. We've criticised the ARL for the recklessness of their expansion model. But when 25 years later, there's still debate over whether we can sustain a Perth team. I go back to having to admire the sheer ambition of it at the time. Like this remarkable tiny window of Australian rugby league looking outwards. And the Super League war comes down and that window is slammed shut and immediately everyone starts turning inwards again. Can you imagine if they did that in 92 and then we had 93, 94, 95, there's no war by then. It could have been up and running. 
Yeah. And we'll never know, but that's as much of the story as we're going to tell today. So a bit of a grim chapter after the highs of our previous one, but... It's good to be back in a wheelhouse. Yeah, Yeah. but unlike the Chargers, unlike the Crushers, unlike the Reds, and unlike the Rams, who uh, I have purposely excluded from this uh, chapter because I'm going to have a chat with our Adelaide correspondent, Guy Wilson about the short life of the Rams as a companion piece to that. So uh, no one knows more about them and loves them all. Exactly. So I thought he was more qualified than either of us to really deep dive into the Rams. <laughs> so um, you can look forward to that. But the Rams are gone. The Chargers are gone. Crushers, Reds, gone. So a sad end for them. But uh, we will have a happier end to our tale. I promise you. So. Uh, that will be coming up soon. So uh, thank you for listening to this one. Toodaloo. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.